So I wanted to start out in a, um, in a little bit of a different way. I have an insanely deep, profound um, image that I'd like to show you guys. Uh, so let's start, let's start right here, okay? Now, um, this reminds me of a couple things. Um, number one, it reminds me of middle school. And if you're here tonight and if you're in middle school, we celebrate you and your season of life. Generally, we don't want to go back there, uh, but we're thankful for what the Lord did in those middle school years. It reminds me of middle school because, you know, you would go to your first school dance, guys on one side, girls on the other. And then if you were brave enough to actually slow dance with someone, right, with a, in my day, a really nice Aerosmith, you know, song, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And today's, I don't know, even good slow songs right now, like something by Adele, I'm sure, you know, you, you would kind of like, you, you would have an ocean between you, right? And so it's this like very like methodical back and forth middle school dance, okay? For those of you that still dance that way, uh, certainly we have uh, some uh, support that we can give you. Now, um, it also reminds me of middle school breakups, all right? Because it seems like in a middle school dance, that's when a lot of breaking up happens. Uh, people, either, uh, people either started relationships in a middle school dance or they ended them. So I thought, just for fun, we could look at some characteristics of a middle school breakup. Here we go. Number one. Here's the characteristics. Uh, the breakup is often built on assumptions. Um, hey, listen, I saw that you were talking to so-and-so at the water fountain. And... Um, and so, like, you, you're, you're like, you like them, right? Like, it's the, we're over because this whole thing, you know, just like this illogical thinking, you know. Yeah, yesterday in math class, the way you didn't look at me that one time, like, this, I, this is over, right? And you're just like, what in the world is happening, right? Like, but it, it's built on assumptions. And, the, you know, the, this breaking up, it seems to hurt so bad, which leads to number two, characteristics of a middle school breakup. The breakup is rarely, rarely a face-to-face conversation. Hey, dude, could you go tell her that we're over? You know, right on, man, I got you, right? And you kind of like go, like, look, you know, you kind of like put yourself behind the locker looking over, and you just like see her, like put her hand on her hips, you know, and right? Or, or, or you send a note. How many of you guys sent, sent ever a breakup note, right? Okay, you sent one. You, you got one. Sorry, sorry about you. Yeah. Like on the bottom, right, there's like a check here if you accept this breakup. And it always got weird if they checked, no, I do not accept, because then you had to deal with it more, right? You're like, no, I don't think you understand. Like, this is over, okay? You give them the option. It's at least cordial, right? How about number three, characteristics, okay? The friends around the breakup choose sides. Classic middle school breakup, right? Uh, oh, we can't be friends anymore. Well, how come? Well, you know, your, your boy broke up with my, my friend, so we're over too, right? And like all of a sudden, there's just these like female and male gangs in middle school, Okay? Generally, it only lasts a couple recesses, right? But for those couple recesses, it's bad news. I mean, they're just, there's no friends at all. And finally, and most significantly, here's the characteristic of a middle school breakup. Next slide. The relationship goes from friend to foe in seconds. In seconds. I mean, you know, you're walking down the hallway holding hands, right? And it's just beautiful. And then something random happens, and then it's like at the locker, just over. And then you walk away like storming mad, right? The middle school breakup. It's a, it's a little bit eerie that we could probably take middle school out of this. 
And we could probably replace that with characteristics of unreconciled relationships and how much we have not matured. We like kind of giggle at middle schoolers, right? Like, ha ha, you know, and you're, you're getting your first armpit hairs and, you know, your voice is cracking a little bit and you're dancing an ocean away and you deal with relationships in such a immature, juvenile way. And then things start to get a little bit real, a little bit fast. My guess is some of you have a relationships that are broken, that's built on assumptions. My guess is some of you have broken relationships because you haven't talked face-to-face. Uh, the contention that's between the two of you is happening over text messaging or some other form of non-face-to-face conversation. We, in general, right now are horrible at face-to-face conversation because we have so much opportunity to not do that. And so we hide behind the phone or the device or the social media aspect. I'm wondering tonight, um, if we replace those words, how many of us would fit into that category? Next slide. So I want to show you guys uh, a little bit of where we've been because what we've witnessed is an attempt at a biblical breakup, okay? Let me explain. Not middle school, straight from the scripture, okay? Two and a half tribes, okay, squared in red, commissioned by Joshua to go and take the land that Moses had promised them, they leave. And when they leave, their first action is to build a massive altar, okay? Well, this doesn't go so kindly with the other nine and a half tribes that are on the left side of your screen. And so what we saw last week is all of a sudden they respond, these nine and a half tribes, to this altar in a very, very contentious way. And so like where we left last week is it looks like this thing's going to break up. It looks like these two and a half tribes and these nine and a half tribes are like, they're not going to get along. And last week, here's what we saw. In response to the altar, the nine and a half tribes, they did this. Number one, they based their reaction on hearing. I know you never do that, but you can maybe a little bit guess, okay? They hadn't seen it. They had just heard it, and they based the reaction on that. We also saw that, that their hearing then causes them to instantly assume that their actions in building an altar is sinful. Uh, their, their next response is they, they right away want to make war. I mean, they're like picking up their weapons, and they're ready to kill people. Listen. You've been mad at people before. You've had relationships, you know, that have gone awry. Rarely, though, even though in your heart maybe you wanted to smack some people around or maybe you wanted to, in your heart, murder someone, rarely did it lead to, I'm going to go kill somebody right now. And in this moment, it did. Like, we're, we're talking about very real, let's make war, let's take them out, let's end it all, okay? We also saw that their questions are judgments. They're not like, so, hey, uh, two and a half tribes who built a you know, a heinous altar in our opinion. So tell us your heart on that. They're like, so uh, that altar is pretty much rebellion against the Lord, right? Okay. I shared with you guys last week, it's when my wife asked me if, if I've been working out. It's not a question of inquisition. It's a question of judgment. Okay. Please don't laugh. And finally, we saw this, that their past, specifically what happened in Numbers 25 and some other sin that had gone awry, plays into their assumptions. Well, All of this leads me to ask a question that I desire to drive much of our conversation tonight. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Are there any relationships in your life that need reconciliation? My guess is in this room, there's a lot of things that um, are diverse about us. We have a lot of differences here. Certainly a lot of stories and perspectives. My guess is this is one thing that unifies us. 
Uh, my thought is maybe different than a lot of nights here. Uh, our topic tonight impacts every single person in this room, believer or unbeliever. Are there any relationships in your life that are in need of reconciliation? Now, reconciliation is simply to restore something that was broken. So if you have any of those, I guess is already beginning like to process through that. Some hurt is beginning to rise up. You're remembering the story. You're being put right back in the pain. Relationships are incredibly powerful. I know tonight, um, many of you who are on the campus of Lindenwood are um, seeing even the, the pain of what relational hurt can do. Um, those of you guys that don't know, there was a young man on the Linenwood campus uh, that lost his life last night. Creates a lot of questions of what if and could this have uh, been done differently. And first of all, I want to uh, tell every single person in this room uh, what I've learned in uh, dealing with um, things that are insanely hard, like the death uh, of this young man, is we can ask uh, questions all day long, um, but really the encouragement is to, is to rest in the truth that we know. And so I know that many of you are hurting, and I just want to let you know we're with you in that pain and hurt, and we have no idea the relational chaos that could have been happening or the confusion, we're not sure, but... I do know this, that there is a deep-rooted truth that in spite of the questions can rally us tonight and take us to Christ, okay? So all of us are unified in this reality. So now tonight, let's see how this potential breakup goes. Open your Bibles, turn in your phones, Joshua chapter 22. We're gonna finish the chapter. We saw no response from the two and a half tribes last week. All we saw was the affirmation or the going against of. And so tonight we watch something much different. Verse 21 of Joshua chapter 22. When you're there, say I'm there. Awesome. This side of the room only. Thank you. We're going to have, let's go for it, okay? You, you guys and us, let's do it. Here we go, verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, again, not a sandwich. This is a tribe. The people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel. Remember, the delegation is gone. So the delegation, these uh, leaders, have gone from the nine and a half tribes to try to figure this out. Well, they have made their accusations, and so now we're going to see the response. Here's what they say. Verse 22, incredible. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today, they say, for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Question, have you ever been wrongfully accused? Okay, my guess is that didn't go so well for you, Right? Like how many of you, when being wrongfully accused, your response was instantly grace? So let me uh, tell you about a time in my life. Uh, I was a youth pastor uh, for seven years of my life. I know that's hard to imagine, uh, but I was a youth pastor. Okay, I started at 18 years old. Uh, the second church that I youth pastored at, 
Uh, I had a, a great experience overall, but I was fighting a lot of battles, as you can imagine. I'm not one to, um, uh, to run away from uh, battles, in particular when it centers around Christ. And so one day I preached at another church, uh, had pastoral approval, come back in my office uh, so that I could share with our students. And all of a sudden my door slams and an elder from the church walks in my office and he puts his uh, finger in my chest and says, sit down, boy. Now, um, again, I played college football. There was like something right away, just the being called a boy and it not being a term of endearment, like made me wanted to literally like tackle him through the drywall. Like that was my first already, right? Like he hasn't said a word. And just like the putting of his finger in my sternum and the push down, I'm like, you know what? You should really eat some drywall for breakfast. This would be nice, right? Well, then, then what happens is he starts, I mean, he's, he's swearing at me in front of students. He's calling me names, assuming all kinds of things, wrong, wrongfully accusing me, right? Everything in me, like initially, was not grace. Again, I wanted to tackle him through the wall. There was, you know, maybe a right hook might feel nice. I mean, I was just like, Thankfully, my actions, I swallowed my pride, and I at least sat there. But extending grace when you've been wrongfully accused, can we just agree, is insanely hard. So does it strike anyone interesting that their first response is about God and not about being falsely accused? Now, what this does is it shows us something insanely powerful, a lesson that if every single one of us learn, it will change the course of your life. You see, what they say is, he knows What they say is God knows. They point right to the relationship with the Lord. Now, uh, some of you guys have played uh, pickup sports, right? Like pickup volleyball, pickup basketball, just a game, you know, on the playground, right? Pickup cheerleading, not a thing. But some of you guys have done that, right? Now, listen, listen. Anytime, anytime when you're playing a pickup game and, and when people are competitive, there's always a point in the game where, like, the ball goes off, you know, it seems like maybe both people's legs. And so both people, like, stand back, right? And it's like... Well, whose ball is it? Well, that man, it clearly went off your foot and a little argument arises. Well, when that happens to me in those moments, what I do is I say, redo, God knows. That's what I say, right? Because I'm just saying like, look, let's replay. And if you score, then yes, in the sovereignty of God, it went off on me. But if not, then the sovereignty of God is going to say, 1-800, you're wrong, which is probably not a real number, but go with it, all right? I just say, God knows. Let's deal with it that way. I love the fact that this is what they do. I, it's, I know it's not a pickup basketball game, and certainly I don't want to lessen this to some sort of, you know, sideshow. But what I do want to say is they say God knows. And listen, if we've sinned, then he can have his vengeance. And we should not be allowed here. But if not, there's a different kind of reality. They go right to the relationship with God. Why? I believe they understand something that Paul later writes about. Here's what Paul says. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me read that last part one more time so it sinks in, marinates a bit. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Is anyone else a little bit impacted by the fact that these two and a half tribes wrongfully accused after fighting for these tribes? They were patient to inherit their land, fought and bled for these tribes, wrongfully accused, and they still are gracious. It's as if they're way more concerned 
about being right in the eyes of God than they are about being right in the eyes of man. And the reality is, for the majority of you, your entire life is dictated by how much you, uh, you please man. Uh, some of you are unbelievably exhausted because of that. Your whole life is waking up one more day only to please man, only to seek man's approval, only to hope that in some way, shape, or form, those around you will approve. So can I share some truth that I pray penetrates your heart tonight? Next slide. What would happen if our relationships, in our relationships, if we were focused completely on serving the Lord and not man? In other words, what if we believed that our feelings will betray us and we said no longer, well, this is how I feel and this is how they feel and this is how this relationship is going and we just said, God, how can we obey you right now in this relationship? What would that, like, what would happen? Are you kidding me? Like, what if we were just like, God, we want to please you. We want to worship you. And we know that we can, like, run the hamster wheel of relationships in pleasing God. But what if all of us just, just stepped back for a second and said, God, what would it mean to glorify you in this situation and not worry about this person or that person? Can I just propose to you, freedom would happen. Some of you have the noose of the approval of man locked tight around your arms, around your waist, around your body. Freedom in Christ can happen tonight. What if the shackles can come off? What if all of a sudden the power of relationships from the eyes of God could happen? I'm telling you, incredible stuff could occur. And so they say, look, God knows, let's rest in him. More poignantly, they say this in verse 24 in response. No, no. But we did it from fear. L listen to this. That in time to come, your children might say to our children, hide your kids, hide your wife, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So look at what they say. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. This is an insane moment in this text. They are thinking right away, not about themselves, but about those who would come after them. So let me expound a little bit on our Ecuador trip. I met Steve, our missionary in Ecuador, in 2010 at a pizza place in New York. I love pizza and now I love Ecuador, and thankfully, uh, in God's sovereignty, he just combined all of those things in one awesome setting. Uh, what's transpired now is uh, tonight at midnight, we'll leave on our 13th trip. We've taken over 180 folks from Matthias's lot, and the relationship in this jungle, uh, planting a church with Pastor Dario and his wife Maria is incredible. But last October, I took a leadership trip with a few of us. We were sitting at a table in Banos, Ecuador. Pastor Dario was there, Steve and Sandy were there, Justin and Mary Bean were there, the couple that we sent down to Ecuador from Matthias for five years. And there was this moment where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit was so present that I remember trembling. Uh, you see, we focus so much when we go to Santana, we've helped Dario plant this church. We focus so much on the young adults, even in particular the young men. As Jared mentioned earlier, a repetitive habitual pattern 
of getting to 15, 16, 17 years old, and then very often turning to alcoholism, which leads to adultery, which leads to abandoning children, and literally like abandoning homes and moving across the street, and then getting that woman pregnant, and then just continuing the rotation. So there was this moment where all of a sudden, we realized by the power of the Holy Spirit, what if, what if this time something happened? Dario, what if this time something changed and your whole focus became the children. What if instead of just sharing nice, cute Bible stories, we started pleading for the salvation of the children. And in doing so, literally, potentially, Lord willing, watching a gospel upheaval in 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 7-year-olds, young men laying their lives at the foot of the cross and saying, no, I'm going to break the generational sin. Like, could you imagine what would happen? We were sharing that. It would seem to be a pipe dream at that table. You know what happened? Listen to this. Dario left that day. Him and I started texting back and forth. He gets like one bar of signal from the jungle. And he said, uh, hey, Pastor Mark, I want you to know that I'm meeting right now with 20 young men every single week. 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. Hey, Pastor Mark, I want you to know that me and my wife are meeting with 10 young females investing, pouring into them, sharing the gospel. And so what's going to happen on this trip, listen to this, this is crazy. We are going in the jungle and we are taking pictures of literally every single child with their name, with aspects of who they are. And you know what we're going to do, church? We're going to bring them back to you. It's e- listen, it's easy to be in a tender here and sit in that nice, comfortable black chair, but together we're going to be called to action. For what? For prayer and revival. We're going to be praying over a nine-year-old boy who is down in South America and asking God for his salvation. Why? So that he won't grow up to potentially be like his dad. Breaking the bonds of generational sin. And then Dario, listen to this. Imagine this already. Texting me and saying, hey, Mark, would you let Matthias know that Maria gave her life to Christ? Would you tell the church to celebrate? They've been praying and God has answered prayers. Can you imagine salvation after salvation? And I'm talking in a village of 400, literally overturned by the gospel. That is the concern here. They're looking past themselves and the first response of their heart is, we don't want your children to think that our children aren't worshiping God. And so we built an altar. We wanted our kids to remember that they're unified, that they're not in disunity, that even though we live on the other side of the Jordan River, listen, we're connected, we're all tribes, we all serve the same God. Now, a little more intentionally with you, have you it's crazy, right? Like, you joke about, I'll, I'll never be like my dad. I'll never be like my mom. And then you say a phrase, and you're like, that was precisely my mom. Some of your fathers, womanizers, adulterers, led your family poorly. You have every opportunity in the power of Christ to break that generational sin. Uh, And even though maybe they didn't look past themselves, you have every opportunity to do that. Listen, I want to tell you now, Uh, there will be a probable day in many of your lives where you'll have little children looking at you. And I want to make sure you understand something. 
the way you teach them about how to use their device, the impact of that sin, that addiction, you believe only impacts you, wake up. Even that what seems to be that little thing, them watching you, oh my goodness, like it never, it seems like that device is always on mom and dad. Like why, why are they, you know, while they're talking to me, like, oh yeah, they're nodding their head, but they're scrolling thinking somehow that that's just going to impact you. Listen, we're not just talking about our generation here. The impact and weight of our sin sinks so deep that I pray just by that opened your eyes for the desperate need of Jesus that we all have. Because just one sin of yours and the pain and the hurt of it can reach down to your kids and their kids and their kids. And you keep going. Some of you here who come from divorced families, you know this all too well. There's not one holiday not impacted. There's not one family moment not impacted. This is this moment. They built an altar because they don't want their kids to be disconnected from the other kids, from the other tribes. And I thank the Lord for the example of looking past themselves. These people who have been wrong and falsely accused. So look at this in verse 26. Therefore we said, <laughs> let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, they say. And between, that's right, look, our generations after us. That we, uh, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Now, 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 listen to this. They could have done a lot of things first. The first fruits of your reaction shows a lot about who you are. Okay, uh, so a lot of times when people win the Super Bowl, right, and the you know the microphones being passed, what's the famous saying, right? It's like, so Tom Brady for the 90th time you've won the Super Bowl, right? What are you gonna do? Oh, gee, I don't know. Maybe I'll go to Disney World, right? Like it's just it's just like this this inclination, almost like impacted in our culture, right? That Disney, I'm sure, pays a whole lot of money for the first reaction to things. Okay, the first thing you feel, the first thing you think shows a lot about your tendencies. Now, uh, they could have done a lot of things here. Let me uh, recap a little bit. Moses told them way long ago, you're going to inherit that land on that side of the Jordan. But first, you need to fight wars. You need to support your brothers. And so that's what they do. They've been fighting. 31 kings have been slain. They've bled. They've worked hard. And now Joshua finally says, so go to your land. And the very first fruits is let's build an altar. We don't need to rush there. Even though we've spent years fighting, waiting to go to our inherited land to finally have rest from war and peace, their first inclination is not me time, it's let's worship the Lord. Is anyone else a little encouraged by this? I mean, this, this is crazy Beautiful. And we thought, they say in verse 28, I love this. If this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but, look at this, to be a witness between us and you. 
And then verse 29. Deep breath, seatbelt on. Look at this. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before the tabernacle. Oh my. Look at this. There's a phrase in this text that I will never ever, I pray, be able to get out of my head. And it is this phrase right here. Do you see what they say? Far be it from us that we should rebel. It's as if they're saying like, it's not even an option for us to be in rebellion against God, which feels so foreign to just about every one of us. Because it seems like every day we got some options. Do I indulge? Do I feed from the faucet of my flesh? Do I go after my lusts and my passions and my pleasures? Or do I take option over here? And it's like every day you're just choosing which door to walk through, which surprise ending to open. Well, the biggest encouragement for me uh, has been looking at the life of the disciples. I've talked about them often here. They're simpletons. They're fishermen. Uh, They're not wise by worldly standards. Uh, In so many ways, you could say that Jesus chose the, the B team Okay, those are a little bit of the, of the outcasts and outsiders, even a tax collector nonetheless. These guys are watching Jesus, that's right, cast out demons. Did you know one of the first miracles they see is an exorcism? How about that for a fisherman, right? Sure, Jesus will follow you. What in the world? Like, you know what I mean? They're seeing a dude foam at the mouth? This is not what we signed up for. There's no possessed fish. Like, we need to go back to the tank. You know what I'm saying? But, but listen. They see exorcisms, they watch healings, they see lepers come and touch Jesus, they watch blind Bartimaeus all of a sudden receive his sight, they, they, they watch the deaf hear, I mean, they, they are exposed to so much. And then they say, so, which one of you guys think is going to sit in the best chair in, in glory, right? And they're just like arguing about like the most juvenile things. And then all of a sudden, in Acts, as the church is exploding There's not one mention of them arguing about which one of them is the greatest anymore. Have you noticed that? Listen, they're not sitting around anymore talking about, well, hold on a second. Well, what about this doubt or that doubt? Can I tell you why? It's because they undoubtedly saw the risen Christ. And when they saw the risen Christ, the options narrowed. And I believe, though, the disciples were failed and flawed and certainly sinful. What happened is the option to return to vomit was no longer an option. I'm not saying they didn't do it on occasion. But I'm saying in their visualization, they didn't see it as an option. You're like, well, why would you say vomit? Like, that makes me vomitous just talking about vomit, okay? See how many times I can say it in a sentence, right? Scripture says in the Old Testament, like a dog returns to its vomit and speaking about how we return to our sin. We know it doesn't taste good. In fact, it's quite, it's quite grotesque. It smells bad. There's nothing luring about it. Why in the world do we go back? It's because we see it as an option. Think about it this way. You're literally seeing your vomit as an option. Selfish living, passionate lust, that's on the table. Um, what if tonight, even though it's not Easter and we're not wearing... Um, bright colors. What if tonight the impact of the resurrection impacted us like the disciples? 
This is pre the death of Jesus, pre the resurrection of Jesus, and these people are saying, far be it from us to rebel against the Lord. Purely on the character of God, let alone a resurrection that you and I get to hear about and believe in. You guys see this? I believe when the option is off the table, I'm not saying you're not going to sin. In fact, Scripture says if you say you're without sin in 1 John, you're a liar. I'm not saying we're called, my friends, somehow to believe that we can live perfectly. But I am saying this, the resurrection has an impact on us. And maybe tonight you realize for the first time that you're continually choosing the vomit means that maybe you don't believe in the resurrection like you thought you did. Far be it from us, they say. Verse 30. So look at this. Here we go. This is awesome. Feel this. This is amazing. So when Phineas, the priest, remember this guy? Kind of an interesting name, but he's a priest. The leader of the delegation. When Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, and that's right, surprise, surprise, the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. This moment in time is so beautiful. Why? Because this people wanted to kill them. They wanted to end their lives wrongfully accused, the two and a half tribes extend grace and now they could stand on principle. The other nine and a half tribes now could stand on, well, yeah, but we're right. And instead, what do they do? Extend grace. Two and a half tribes extend grace. Nine and a half tribes extend grace. And so now here you have, in the, even though there's no Titanic theme song playing in the background, you have a beautiful moment in the scripture. People literally ready to kill one another. And now it was good in their eyes. But not even that. Look at verse 31. Oh my goodness. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, check this out. Be encouraged by this. Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. Some of the most joyful, closely connected to the Lord times I've ever had in my life are when I thought reconciliation could not happen. I was even going into the time where I was going to confess sin or challenge a brother or be rebuked myself. I was like, there's no way we're walking out of this. And then all of a sudden something happened. Grace was extended. Benefit of the doubt was given. Healing occurred. The Spirit just grabbed us and shook us. And undoubtedly in that moment, we're both like, the presence of God is here right now. So closely connected with unity. Do you guys see this? The natural reaction of Phineas is, the presence of God is in our midst. Why? Because the presence of God has to do with peace has to do with unity. And so when we encounter it, oh my goodness, the presence of God is right here, right now. Look at this. Today we know the Lord is in our midst. Because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord because now no one had to die to save and preserve others from the wrath of God. Unity, my friends. The power of the gospel has brought some of the most joyful moments of your life. Amen? So if that's true, 
can I ask the obvious question, why do we run from it then? So um, I, in college, I hate to admit this, uh, I was not a, um, how do I say this correctly? I was not a non-procrastinator studier. Is that appropriate? Is that right? So in other words, I procrastinated generally, okay? This is a true story. Again, I hate to admit this. I never studied for a test uh, outside of the day before, okay? I never wrote a paper outside of the day before, okay? Right? So like, Never, ever was I like a week out, like, oh my goodness, like, what are we going to do here? Like, this is, it, it never happened, right? It, it was always in the last minute, always off the cuff. And all of a sudden, what I, what I see happening here is like, we so quickly forget what the Lord has done, just like, quite honestly, I forget about 85% of what I learned in school, Right? Right? So, hey, Mark, what'd you learn in history? I don't know, you know? I rocked the test, okay? My GPA was like 395, right? One point lower than Heidi. I'm still angry about it, but listen. Listen, that's my wife. For those of you like, Heidi, random, okay? No, she's my wife, all right? I don't remember anything. Listen, we're so forgetful. That's the point of this altar. We don't want our kids to forget. It's the point of taking this second and just saying, we are so incredibly forgetful, but... If right now all of a sudden the remembrance of God could smack us again in the face and we could remember that some of the most joyful times in our life have been when we've unified, when we've reconciled, when all of a sudden the relationship that seemed broken came together, if we could remember that, then maybe we would run after reconciliation instead of run away. And so verse 32, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and the chiefs, Return from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan. They go back to the people of Israel and they brought back word. Can you imagine that moment? Like all of a sudden the whole nation has their weapons in their hand and they start to see Phineas start walking down the road. And they're like, oh yeah, he's, he's angry. We can tell he's got his angry face, right? Looks a, little, looks a little flustered. We're going to war. And they pick up their weapons and, you know, they, they're seeing this whole delegation come down. The dust is flying up behind their feet. And then only to hear the description. Uh, hey, everybody. Actually, it turns out um, the altar isn't sinful at all. And their heart behind it was worshipful. And we were wrong. Can you hear the weapons hit the ground? All of a sudden, this great reversal of war to peace. And verse 33, the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, look at this, then blessed God, worshiped, and spoke no more of making war against them. Hello, you have to see this. You have to see this. Uh, one of the things that Christians are awesome at is fake reconciling. I talk about a lot. My church growing up was the Truman Show. Have you guys seen the movie, right? Okay, everything is just awesome. Okay, if you've seen the Lego movie, same deal, right? Like, everything is just awesome. All the, is that the Lego movie, right? Everything is awesome, okay? It, that, that was the reality. Everything is just awesome all the time. Everyone's fine. Listen, they were professional smilers. You know, you would like, oh, that's a really good smile. Like, I don't know where you learned that. They were phenomenal handshakers. But then when tension would arise... We would fake reconcile. 
uh, hey, we're both angry at each other, but what we're going to do is there's going to be this common understanding. We're going to like act like we've dealt with it, but in reality, in our hearts, we're just going to hate each other, but we're going to smile at one another because that's way easier. Deal? And so Christians then all across the world are making fake reconciliation deals. Let's act like it's okay. In our heart, we'll harbor bitterness. We'll ultimately want you dead, but we'll smile at you. We'll embrace you. We'll even give you a hug, just like the kiss of Judas. What I love about this is they say, not just have we reconciled, but there was no more talk of making war. It was over. We're done. This is completed. And so they spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. In the last verse of chapter 22, verse 34, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. <laughs> I was like, this is kind of the moment where you want something a little more poetic, right? Like, we, they called the altar the big, like, you know, we reconciled and worked things out, stone of love. You know, like you want something a little more Just me, I guess. We called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us uh, that the Lord is is God. So both sides of the river are saying the Lord is God. Now, I want to take us back to something that I asked earlier. And this was the question that we asked a little bit earlier. Next slide. The question was this. Here we go. Next slide if you can, Andrew. Are there any relationships in your life that need reconciliation? I asked you this earlier. I want to shift the question just a little bit. I want to ask it this way. Are there any relationships in your life where it seems like reconciliation is impossible? Now, I think there are some reasons why you would feel that way. And again, my guess is just about every one of us in this room feels like it's impossible. This seems like an impossible situation. We go from war to peace in an instant. Here's some reasons why reconciliation seems impossible. Number one time, that happened five years ago. There's no way we're going back. That pain, that agony was opened so far back in my timeline of life. I'm just kind of over it, we'll say. Can I ask you, are you over it? What does over it even mean? That you've truly forgiven, that you've truly left it? The reason why it feels impossible is because it feels untouchable. It happened so long ago. We can't go back. Okay? It also feels impossible because you know the hard work ahead. I mean, think about it. How many of you prefer hard conversations? That's your natural bet. You prefer hard conversations. Anybody by raise a hand? Okay. See six people. Okay. The odds aren't good there, right? So six of you prefer hard conversations. The rest of us, not so much. We try to veer away from hard conversations. You know, in reconciling, in reconciling relationships, like, it's difficult. Humility is difficult. Swallowing your pride is difficult. Owning your sin is difficult. And so you're just like, forget it. It's impossible. So I'm good. I'll just forget about it. But have you forgotten about it? 
Are you good? Is it over? The third reason why it seems impossible. I've entitled this them. It's their fault. It's their problem. They didn't apologize. They didn't own their sin. They left the interaction this way. They, 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 they. This is ingrained in us. Listen, there is never one moment right now in my two boys' lives where they owned their sin. I'm serious. Like, we'll come down, okay? Glass is broken. Balls have been flying everywhere in my basement, right? I mean, there was a day where the TV was broken, okay? Like, a, a ball was thrown through the glass, and then it just tipped over. And we'll come down, right? And there will be just one of them down there. So, hey, what happened down here? Uh, it was a really... It was a, f- a really aggressive fly. Um, it just kind of went at it there, Dad. I don't know. We can, let's pray for that fly right now. I mean, they'll even like bring the Lord in there. You know, I'm just like, what are you, an idiot? Like, and then I see myself in them. Them, them, them. It's their problem. It's their fault. It's their issue. Listen, I know that scripture says, as far as it depends on you, seek peace. We can't control the other person's heart. We can't control their repentance, their response. We can't control those things. But my friends, until you own your side, until you own your sin, then I'll tell you what, reconciliation is not going to happen. Them, them, them. That's why it feels impossible because they're such an issue. Number four, the previous attempts have gone bad and so you're just like, forget it. I've been burned too much, hurt too much. I tried to reconcile with them and they ended up betraying me. I came to them, I confessed my sin to them. I even told them how I wronged them and then you know what they did? They said they forgave me and then they gossiped about me, so forget it. They actually used that information about what I confessed to them and they rallied some of my friends against me sharing with them the sin that I confessed to them when this was supposed to be like a unifying conversation. So forget it, I'm done. So you just go back to, it's all good land. Just smile and it will be okay. Never deal with it, don't worry about it. Just do another sweep. This is what we talked about last week, my friends. Jesus has dealt with sin so that all of us in Christ stop sweeping and instead confront and instead rest in grace, and instead challenge our brother and sister, and instead confess our sin. Why? Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. He's done the hard work, and so now we just get to rest in the freedom of Christ underneath that. Are we together? Okay. But it feels impossible because of it. It also seems impossible because of the depth of pain. This is hard to breach because I know what's happening in some of you is you're like, no, 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 like go back down there. I don't want to deal with this right now. I've forgotten about this. The thoughts of the pain are coming up, the wrongs, the sin. And so the thought is, You have no idea how badly I hurt. There is no way reconciliation can ever happen. The pain is too deep. We start to look at those five things. 
What do we do then? I'm asking, what do we do? Because relational tension, we're waiting on it. Sinning against a brother or sister, it's going to happen tonight, tomorrow maybe. What do we do? Do we act like we're unified? Is that the answer? I'm asking, do we act like we're unified? Do we just put on the smiley face again? Do we deal with the ones that are close in proximity to us while the other brothers and sisters in Christ who wrong us forget it? They're not really that big of an issue anyway, and I can just kind of move on. Move on where? You see, the power, my friends, of all of these five things are not more powerful than the gospel. In fact, so much so that all of a sudden, the next slide, this text starts to make some sense. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, what? Come on. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now hold on a second, hold on a second. All of those five things feel, seems impossible, but then all of a sudden I'm told in the promise of what God has done in Christ is he has dealt with this issue of sin. Now let me take you back to the Garden of Eden. Before Eve is made, before Eve is made from the rib of Adam, okay, all of a sudden God comes to Adam and he lays out how things are to work in the garden. And he shares with him the things to stay away from, and he commands the things that he can embrace. Well, then Eve is born, is taken out of the rib, and all of a sudden given life. We can assume at that point that Adam shared those commands with Eve. Do you know who Satan approaches? Satan, in the form of a serpent, goes after who? Eve. To do what? The entrance of sin was getting in between a relationship. Do you guys see this? The very first human relationship and the enemy goes right after it. Why? Because of the power it has. God told Adam this. I can get in there. Hey, did God really say Eve this? And all of a sudden, doubts cast. And all of a sudden, this relationship is experiencing tension. And all of a sudden, they disobey God. And you know what happened in that precise second Romans says? Because one sin, now all of sin. Every single one of us born. Unbelievably separated from God. Distanced from him. In need of reconciliation. In need of something to bring these things together. And that's what, it's, uh, that's what this passage is saying. God in Christ did that reconciled us to himself. But my friends, oh my goodness, do you know how this text ends? It ends like this. Next slide. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because we're the ones that have tasted it. We're the ones that have known grace. We're the ones that have tasted how far it was to be away from God and now somehow how near we can be in Christ. And so then, the ministry of reconciliation is given to the people of God. 
Why? So that we can tell the world, listen, I know you feel like there is no hope here. I know it feels broken. I know it feels like you can never approach God. I know it feels like that all of this is impossible. But let me tell you something. It was my sin problem that was impossible to take care of. It was my distance from God that was impossible to take care of. It was all of the betrayal. It was all the days I had spent flipping God off. All of those things were impossible. And you know what happened, my friends? God sent Jesus to do the impossible so that I could be reconciled with God and then tell the world what reconciliation is. And so why in the world then are we running from reconciliation when it is one of the gifts that God has given to the world through his church? Hold on, I thought you guys were like unbelievably angry at each other. Yep, we were. We were. But you know what happened? Biblically, we sat down and extended grace. We didn't just sweep it under the rug. We shared our hurts. And I only went to them. And then you know what happened? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit, came and we were in the midst of the presence of God. I'm saying tonight, there are relationships that you need reconciliation in. And I'm just asking you, my friends, why are you waiting one more day, 10 years ago, five years ago, today, God's given you as a brother and sister in Christ. He's given you as a son and daughter of the king to tell the world just how powerful reconciliation is by us actually existing in it. Why? Next slide. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It feels like there's no hope. It feels like this is going nowhere. It feels like that relationship is over. But my friends, what if the Lord intervened? What if the Lord humbled your heart? What if the Lord humbled theirs? What if you gave them a chance to repent? What if your only action step tonight was to, for the first time in forever, believe, believe that the empty tomb meant that reconciliation could happen? You didn't have to write it off anymore. Just tonight you came to this belief. God, the pain is so deep. The past is so hurtful. But God, here, help me believe tonight that you can do a work. What if that was the action step? What if together we just cried out to the Lord and said, help our unbelief, God. Help us believe tonight for the very first time in maybe a long time. That the power of your spilt blood and the power of an empty tomb has unbelievable implications on every aspect of our life. And so that's why tonight, my friends, there is no other place to go than to celebrate what Christ has done. He's made a way. And we can trivialize that and we can lessen the impact of that, but he's made a way. And so we come to the table of grace tonight Not the table of separation, but the table that a king has invited you to. Offering the hand of fellowship, saying you can have reconciled relationship to the one who made you, 
to the one who can save you. And so tonight we celebrate by pulling off a piece of the bread that represents the broken body of Christ and dipping it in the cup which represents the shed blood of Jesus which has atoned us, forgiven us of our sins. I want to invite the leaders to come up here and join me now. These are a lot of family leaders. The servants that shepherd you, care for you, pray for you. And so tonight in the power of unity, they're going to serve this meal tonight. Why? Because we're in this together. It's not about you or them or that person or this person. It's us. We are the body of Christ, ministers of reconciliation. So let's tell the world that what they think is impossible actually with our God is unbelievably possible. So some of you tonight need to take time, repent. Some of you tonight will even need to go to a brother or sister and say, listen, I need to confess this to you before you come up here. But in the grace of God, let's come in hope and in grace and rest in the impossible together. Come and share in this meal.